Hello. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. I'm your host, Golem, a.k.a. Greg Livingston, and we are back this time to talk about Star Tropics. But before we get to video games, I wanted to ask, Daniel, how have you been doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, thank you. All right. Yourself, how have you been doing? Uh, just lovely. Just lovely. Zanrio, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I'm enjoying the end of my vacation. Ah, summer break. Yeah, a really long one. <laughs> Warrior fan, how are you doing? Oh, um, well, I'm kind of, kind of sick with something, but otherwise fine. Ah, oh, that sucks. Adrian, how are you doing? I'm okay. School started, so it's not too bad yet. You just got to sit through some boring lectures, talking, going over the syllabus. Yeah, right. yeah, I love the going over the syllabus class. <laughs> I never showed up at class till like the third week because of that. I want to make sure we were done with the syllabus before I showed up. <laughs> the third week. Sadly, yeah. UCF I... is similar to Valencia, where you are immediately kicked out of class if you do not show up the first day. <laughs> nice. It's it's yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> and it also damages your financial aid. Oof. Yeah. So, Shouty, how are you doing? I'm eating my dinner that took two hours to come. Oh, man, your dinner will be kicked out of eating class. Yeah, um, <laughs> eating class. <laughs> yep, I will be, unfortunately. Uh, what are you having? A turkey burger with avocado on it and sweet potato fries. Oh, sweet potato fries. Ooh, you yeah. should uh, email me some if you can. I'm trying. All right, thanks. Just, just email me a JPEG of your meal or something. You know? So there are a couple other Zelda-style games with a jump button. And when I, say, when I say Zelda-style, I mean like an adventure game, and you have an overhead view, and you typically have like a melee attack. There's a couple other Zelda-style games that have a jump button, like Crusader of Senti, or Link's Awakening, or Terranigma. And Daniel, have you played any of those kinds of games? I've played Link's Awakening, but I haven't played the other games that you've listed. So how does Link's Awakening use the jump button? Oh, well, yeah, like you just jump over um, holes or water channels or things like that. Um, it's quite similar to Star Tropics in some ways, but I don't think there's a lot to say about it, simply because of the top-down-ish perspective. You're not able to see, uh, sorry, easily judge, I should say, at the height of the avatar's jump. And so uh, I think that because of that reason, they don't build a lot of variability into it. So it's like, unlike in Super Mario Brothers, where you can control the height of the jump with, uh, with your button presses in Star Tropics and also with, with Link's Awakening, you press and you just do the jump like, of a fixed height. At least I think that's how it is in Link's Awakening. I'm not, yeah. I haven't played it for a few years. It is, yeah. yeah. You're right, it's a fixed type. But they also deviated on a little in that you get to combine it with the uh, Pegasus boots. Mm, yeah. So you can expand yeah, the length. Cool. Yeah. Another major difference with Link's Awakening is you actually do have, I think you have some mid-air control of that jump. It's not quite as fixed as Star Tropics is. Mm. Right. Okay. Yourself, have you played any Zelda-ish games with a jump button? Yeah, I played Beyond Oasis, which had a jump. So how does Beyond Oasis use its jump? Beyond Oasis, I guess, well, 
I would say it's more combat focused than your average Zelda game, but then I would say the same thing about Star Tropics. Right. In Beyond Oasis, a lot of times it's used for getting over enemies or enemies' attacks. It's not variable height, but you do have mid-air control and you can attack mid-jump. So it's mostly used at the player's discretion, not something that uh, you're going to use to solve a lot of puzzles or anything. So is that to say it's that's a dodge move? Yeah, more or less. That's probably the most frequent use for it. Okay. Zanrio, have you played any Zelda-ish games with the jump button? Just Link's Awakening that I can think of. All right. Did you think the jump was fun in Link's Awakening? It was okay, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't have much of an opinion on it. Yeah, it's kind of just one item out of well, a whole yeah. bunch of different ones. Just plot the gameplay. Yeah. A jump in a Zelda game isn't as game-changing as you think it'd be. What? Breath of the Wild. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> oh! Oh, fuck you. You spoiled that. <laughs> yeah, you spoiled that. Yeah, I spoiled that you can use the jump. In that yeah. game. He, he really doesn't ruined. know that, Shouty. It's he ruined just... now. It's Adrian's ruined. not even going to buy it anymore. Because you did I'm that. Not. Live on camera. <laughs> All right, thank you. <clears throat> so, Wario fan, have you played any Zelda-ish games that have a uh, jump button? Uh, does that uh, level in 3D land count? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the level that you can jump in 3D land. Does that what? Count? I can't. The the level that's basically Zelda style. In yeah, the 3D jump land. level. I don't remember that. You don't remember that? That was yeah, specifically overhead in a Mario game. Oh, there's a lot of overhead segments in that game. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, it, it was one. It, it specifically had a, a, a Zelda style level. So yeah, what I made it Zelda style? Because it did that uh, overhead thing and uh, with the dungeon, and you were moving around between rooms with the scrolling. Were there puzzles or anything? I think there were puzzles. There's a torch lighting puzzle. Okay, that's kind of neat. I'm pretty sure it played the Zelda jingle at some point, right? Yeah, when you fly all those torches, the fire flower. Oh. So that's neat. Coming at it from the opposite angle, like uh, choosing a platformer that becomes Zelda-ish. Rather than a Zelda game that becomes platformer-ish. I mostly did it as a joke, but I'm glad you accepted it as a serious (laughs) answer. Yeah, to help (laughs) refit out a bit, there is a level where most of the overhand cameras are set up a specific way, but in the Zelda-ish one, it is direct overhead to where Mario's head is the only thing you can see of him. Mm. Whereas in the other ones, it's a a bit angled more, so you can still make out the rest of Mario's body. So you don't That's... get that uh, Z-axis in there where you jump along. Yeah. So, Adrian, how would you say that Terranigma uses its jump button? I don't remember you could get it much use for as far as dodging things or jumping over them. But most of the time, even when you do jump, you pretty much want to use that cool slide kick he does or that little spin he does in the air to hit enemies with. Right, it's mostly useful for triggering different attacks. Yeah, and especially since most enemies can still be hit with that, even though you're you're jumping off the ground. But because he doesn't jump very high off the ground, that's probably the reason for that. The other instances for using the jump is those sections for platforming, when you, especially when you want to dash and jump over pits. That's mostly what you use the jump for in Terra Enigma. There weren't it's... many pits, though, were there? I guess... No, that's why I wouldn't say Terra Enigma is 
it doesn't lean towards platforming any more than Link's Awakening does. It feels a, actually I would say even less than Link's Awakening. It doesn't use the jumper classic gaps like right. not that much. Yeah, Terranigma is definitely more along the lines of Beyond Oasis, where it's a use at the player's discretion, not we're going to set up times where we want you to jump. Okay. Which I guess, the other thing about Link's Awakening that no one mentioned is that it's one of the items that you have to equip, so mm. jump isn't necessarily there with you the entire game. You have yeah. to make a conscious choice of when you want to be able to jump. Yeah, true. Yeah. All right. Shouty, have you played any Zelda-style games with a jump button? I played Minish Cap. That has a jump. Yeah. Item. It has an upgraded version of the the jump item in Link's Awakening. Huh. It lets you. The yeah, the rocks cape, and it lets you vary your jump height, and oh, also lets you glide. That was a feather. You know, it feels like we're cheating when we say Zelda games for Zelda-style games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, if nobody's played Crusader of Senti, you know, what can you do? Uh, you're, no one has played. It's on my list. Someone could have said Popful Mail, at least. No, nobody. Uh, I don't want to say Popful Mail. Shouty, how much does the variability in the jump height affect the platforming in Minish Cap? Well, it really doesn't, actually. Well, maybe it does... I think it uses more the glide mechanic that lets you catch um, updrafts and oh. go across platforms. There's also gates you can go through using the highest jump altitude. Okay. Oh, wait, there's also an, um, an attack that you can use by equipping the rocks cape where you can jam your sword down into the ground, Zelda 2 style. Oh, yeah, you can do that in Link's Awakening too. Really? Yeah, if you jump and then push B, you know, for the sword, you'll do the down step. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait a minute. Uh, was... What? I don't oh, think so. Gonna... We can verify later. <laughs> I mean, I'm... <laughs> no, I just got out Link's Awakening right now to test it. <laughs> Daniel, did you have something on your mind? Uh, yeah, uh, I was going to say, I think that the reason why um, the jump mechanics are quite static in these sorts of um, top-down action games is just because you really like it's really hard for the player to judge depth and I guess Minish Cap it's got that variability but it's probably not used a great deal I think but I haven't played that game for a while so I can't really comment but I think just because of that perspective it kind of limits how much you can build gameplay challenges around variable heights right something worth noting about Star Tropics is that even though you can jump there's never a difference in elevation Everything's all on one plane. Right. You're either on the ground or not on the ground. It's binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. To yourself, how are you doing on that test? Uh, I think what I think I misunderstood what Adrian meant. I think maybe in the 2D sections, you could do the downstab. Mm-hmm. In the top-down no. sections, you definitely don't do it. Yeah, that's what I meant. Well, I meant that the top-down sections... I guess it isn't literally Zelda 2 style because it's top-down or whatever. We get the idea. Alright. Star Tropics is an overhead action game, so Mike walks around the screen and fights enemies. However, he has to move in full tiles rather than smaller, fine movements. This influences gameplay at its very core, and it's unusual. So we'll spend some time considering the controls of Star Tropics in and of themselves.
In this next segment, I wanted to talk about the controls. StarTropics has really interesting controls, but I don't know a great way to talk about them in and of themselves. I do. Shouty, how would you describe the controls in StarTropics? Yeah, you Very clunky. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Very what were you saying, Shouty? Very clunky, almost like moving a chess piece. What makes it clunky? The fact that if you want to change your direction, it takes a while to get going in that direction. Yeah. Because um, the game accounts for you changing your direction as a separate button endpoint, uh, input as moving in that direction. Before we get any further, Adrian, could you give us like a quick rundown of how all of the movement abilities work? Right. I guess how I would describe it is stiff, because as Shade was saying, and whenever you move and the direction is different than the direction you're already facing, it takes a little bit of time for Mike to face that direction and then to move into it. So you can never instantly change direction like in Zelda. Just on a more basic level... Mike is always mapped to a tile grid on the screen. That, mm, yeah, you that's never, him. His... You can never move outside of an underlying set of tiles. I think it's like 32 by 32 pickles or something like that. 30 but... by 32 pickles? <laughs> pickles, yeah. <laughs> but the point being that um, you can't move in fine-grained movements. And so while Mike is taking a step, you can't cancel that step with anything. You can also jump Wait, no. on the Wait, spot no, at any can. point. Or you can cancel it. Yes. You can cancel what it. cancels it? You just, Moving in the opposite direction. Jumping yeah. doesn't cancel your movement, though. You jump during the movement and then no. continue the movement. Like, when he no. lands, he'll finish taking the step. But you can still cancel it by moving um, the opposite in, in the opposite direction quickly. Right. That That's doesn't. You don't to... occupy the next tile that way? No, that's what I used to bait up the snakes. If you move in one direction and then hit the opposite direction, Mike, you know, if you're still in between the tiles, he will turn back and he will actually move instantaneously. He doesn't take any time to turn around. He just goes back. Okay, that's interesting and worth knowing. Aside from that, you have a jump ability. You can always jump directly up. And if there is a tile that you can jump to, either right next to the tile you're on or one tile away, then you can jump there. Otherwise, you can never cover any horizontal ground with a jump. You can only um, jump to that one tile away tile by uh, being on an already raised platform that you're on. Like if there's a ground in between the tile you're trying to jump up on, right. you, cannot, you, you won't go on it just because you're one tile away from it. Right, there's got to be water or something between you and the yeah. tile. Yeah, yeah. Right, you can either jump onto a tile next to you or jump over one tile of obstacle next to you. Right. So these controls are really complicated and come with a lot of... Wait, you didn't, you didn't explain turning yet. Oh, we did. <laughs> or did you? You said yeah. you can move, but then when you turn, you don't move. Yeah, we explained that. That's, so, the, that's why we were describing the controls as stiff. Well, yeah, but you guys didn't actually explain how it works. The way it works is that if you push the D-pad in a direction you're not facing... Mike will face that direction but not move. And then if you push it again in that direction or continue to hold it, he will take a step. So it's kind of like tank controls, except that up doesn't always go forwards. It's also worth noting you can only change directions. Once you occupy a whole tile, you can't change... You can move backwards mid-tile, but you can't 
make Mike face left or right mid tile. Unless you jump. Yeah. Jump you can change direction midair as well. Okay. Change direction but not moving it. So you're not gonna get any diagonal jumping, but you can have him jump forward and then face left or right, or even backwards. So just right off the bat, there's a lot of weird and complicated rules to that and it definitely took me some time to learn just how to walk around. Sanrio, what can you do with the jump in the Star Traffics? Well, I can jump up to dodge, dodge fireballs and stuff. Yeah. Then again, jump between holes and up onto those raised platforms, the green ones. Yeah, so you use it to get around and to dodge stuff. There's definitely, yeah. throughout the game, there's a lot of stuff you need to jump over just because there's no way to walk around mm. it. And, yeah. Um, there's one more thing that you can do with jumping. Yes? You can use it to step on switches that may or may not be visible. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Act, or activate a switch or make an item appear out of nowhere. Yeah, that's true. Open a treasure chest. Mm-hmm. So you have the jump as a means of getting around, you have the jump as a means of dodging stuff, and you have the jump as a... It's the main way you interact with puzzles in the game, and that that's how you activate a switch to make something occur in the screen. Right. You rarely push B or the yo-yo to pick up things. Well, you actually can pick up things, but I mean for the chest. You don't open a chest with the yo-yo. Yeah. The other thing that you can do with jump is that you can also jump and attack at the same time, and you'll do like a forward diagonal yo-yo thrust in front of you, which is neat. Yeah. Jumping is the only way that you can attack while moving. So if you jump and, well, do what Daniel just described, or you can turn sideways and attack mm-hmm. perpendicular to your movement. Yeah. Yeah, attacking on the ground stops you. But, you know, I think that this um, design, although it's quite static and it's you know, based around the tile or unit design, it is very clean. Like, it's easy to make decisions in the game because everything is so tightly mapped on that tile structure so it's hard sometimes to judge mechanics on their own but I think when you put these um, uh, the jump and the, and the attack on mechanics come together with the challenges it, it fits quite well and it makes the puzzles um, and the dungeons very very clean and easy to understand. So when you say clean you mean when you look at a screen you understand that everything is going to happen on a tile-by-tile basis? Yeah, like, if you if you look at the boss in Chapter 2, I think it is, uh, in the Magma's Tunnel, which is the kind of, um, uh, I don't know, Gaulish statue. Are you talking about the oh, one sorry. where you have to hit the switches and boil them alive? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, although... You douse them alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, although the projectile that the boss fires out, are, they've got a bit of um, lock-on and they can you know, move diagonally, but because each of your jumps or each piece of movement is mapped to those units, when a projectile is coming your way, it's easy to identify what your options are, if that makes sense. Yeah, it simplifies and, the gameplay. And it also makes it... Yeah, and, and it also makes it easy to understand uh, a lot of the enemy 
patterns like the snakes, you know, they move in a straight line. Or if some of the enemies, like if you try to predict on the way that they'll move, if you move into a block that's diagonal from them, then you'll know that they'll either move to either side of you. So it's quite easy to predict that. Or And the same in those rooms where it's like a series of tiles uh, spread out over water. Like it makes it very clear where the enemies that bounce around on those tiles will move to. So, yeah, it, it's very uh, easy to read. But that also makes the bats and the flies really tricky because they move diagonally. Yeah, that's true. But you can still take their diagonal movement and map it against the tile structure quite easily, I think. But yeah, it does make it more difficult for them. And that's why they're a unique challenge uh, in terms of the set of enemies. Yeah. Yeah, the game definitely doesn't casually use diagonal movement. A lot of the enemies that move diagonal, that's the only thing that they do is move diagonally. Yeah. Mm. And another enemy that's a great example of what Daniel was talking about, about predicting where they can go, are those flies that move horizontally, but they track you diagonally. So when they see you, they sort of flap their wings for a bit and then move in a diagonal pattern and then sort of rebound off 45-degree angles. Mm. Yeah, the that's eye right. guys. So I saw something interesting earlier. Typically what I try to do with those guys is race up to the top of the screen as quickly as possible so that I can kill them while they're moving horizontally, because that's really easy. But what I saw yourself doing earlier was baiting them out by standing in a easy-to-escape tile, and then he would move downward, and the fly would already be locked into its diagonal trajectory, and so it would fly by above him, and he would just have to yo-yo upwards mm-hmm. to hit it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. right yeah. Yes, I did do that. (laughs) I think that you could say, and this is really just continuing from what Daniel said, that it's a game that seems to derive controls from the concept of the gameplay versus the other way around. When you have a really simple control set like this, it's easy to just say, oh, well, the character can walk on any pixel or whatever, and that is like the... I guess, most straightforward way to go about it. But when you're designing challenges that are based on the player trying to figure out, you know, which tiles to jump on and stuff like that, it just makes more sense to go about it in the particular way that they did. You wouldn't use this control scheme for a game that wasn't exactly this game. It can't be separated from that. Mm. Whereas, like, something like, Terranigma has a fairly generic control set, and that game doesn't have to be a Zelda-style game to use those controls. Right. One other thing is that the jumping in this game is more or less automated. So if you see a tile, and it's even if there's a gap, you can very confidently, you know, hold that direction and push A, and you know, Mike will sort of take care of the rest. There's no way you can overshoot or undershoot a jump like in Mario or even in Link's Awakening. That can't happen in Star Tropics. The yeah, only Link's way Awakening, if... if you jump half a tile early, then you don't clear a jump. Whereas in Star Tropics, mm. it's impossible to jump half a tile early. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember doing that a lot in Link's Awakening. <laughs> it was annoying. Yeah. And it doubly covers you because you can't jump half a tile too late either because you can't walk off edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The core of Star Tropics is about those dungeons and it's a very specific set of discrete gameplay challenges that involve 
that tile-based movement, whereas Super Mario Brothers is about, you know, testing your ability to, to jump in various different forms. And so, you know, the two games are about very different things, and the controls represent that, and that's not a, like, a good or a bad thing, it's just, you know, like, that's just how they uh, design the games. Yeah. Yeah, the point is, um, by comparing the different jumps, is just to speak to how they set up challenges differently. Yeah, so in mm, Star yeah. Tropics, it, it's less about, you know, your finesse with a D-pad and more thinking about where you're going to go next because if, you, if you're if you too slow to react, that little delay between Mike having to face a direction and move away can be what gets you hit. Mm-hmm. So Especially with those bowling balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Disappearing uh, various platforms over lava and water. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, those. they're the worst. Yeah, they are pretty rough. So the other way it sort of makes you think ahead is when you've got these like real discrete movements and a simplified gameplay space with like the tile set. You need to be more conscious of the sequence of your movements. So you see it mm. most or most obviously in the jumping puzzles when you're going over a river or something like that. And when you have there's only like one line of tiles that will take you through. So each movement or each jump is always there to set you up for something else. And, you know, that obviously becomes more complicated the longer the chain is. And that's something that Star Tropics really digs into and that you don't get as much in a game that has more flexible controls because Mm. a game with more flexible controls really can't limit you in that same way and can't force you to think ahead because, you know, maybe you can just do a, a really high jump to get over an enemy or a really low jump or something, and you can end up in two totally different spaces despite solving the same challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's much more uh, methodical, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's a good word for it. As regards all the comments about um, the controls being stiff and yourself's comment about it requiring planning, I feel like a consistent theme throughout the controls is just like a sense of commitment like you get with Castlevania. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that if you move forward a tile, unless you go back, you're like committing to move that full tile. And if you make a jump, you're committing to Mm -hmm. one specific jump. And if you don't have a tile to jump to, then when you jump to dodge something, you are committing to land on the same spot and like... If you're dodging a bat, then there's a chance that you'll just land on the bat and get hit anyway. And that's something offset a little by the yo-yo, where you can mash it and get out a lot of quick attacks. Yeah. Castlevania, yeah, that's definitely. Of, that, um, of the very static and discreet movement. So, like, after uh, in Super Mario Brothers, as you make a jump, if you realize halfway through it's not very, very good, you can adjust a little bit, but there's none of that. In. So it is, yeah, it does take more committal. More so a commitment. Castlevania is really the point of comparison for me as well. I feel like the game is a platformer insofar as Castlevania is a platformer. And I know that a lot of people that would be like, yeah, of course it is. But I think they use it to the same extent, basically. They use jumping to the same extent. Castlevania is just a lot harder Mm. about it. All right. In these upcoming segments, we'll talk about the theme or central idea of some of the levels. 
As we do that, though, we'll bear in mind the controls in Star Tropics. How does each level take advantage of Mike's abilities? Up first is the very first level in the game. This bit focuses mainly on the jump, and how the first level introduces its use in navigation and puzzle solving. Wario fan? Hi! Uh, what, du- what dungeon will you be talking about? I'm going to talk about the original dungeon, the first dungeon. What gives 1-1 its theme? The theme, I would say, is uh, welcome to Star Tropics. This is how it plays. <laughs> this is what you do. Um, so what makes you say that? Well, along the way, you're going to have to uh, realize, oh, this is what uh, Mike Jones can do. He can he can jump across gaps. He can hit buttons. Oh, this is how I navigate through the, the maze. These are telltale signs here. At one point, you're blocked by a treasure chest of all things. And uh, <laughs> you have to... You can't get through unless you open it. So you have to um, jump around the very narrow hallway for a switch to open the chest, and then you can take the item inside and continue on through the cave. Right, so like that moment with the treasure chest, the game forces you to encounter these really basic low-level things about the control set. Right. I think it also maybe plays with your expectations if you're, say used to Zelda, you know, and exploring the dungeons there. Because, you know, like like we said, you know, the big thing that stands out here is that you can jump, which Link couldn't do in the uh, original NES game. So it's like, oh, oh, these these remind me of another game I like, but I can I can jump around and do this and that, mess with traps and all that, so it definitely sets the expectation that jumping is going to be a key element of this game, like this isn't the Rock's Feather. Right. Nobody's, nobody would know what the Rock's Feather is in, at this point. Uh, the, the game was not out yet. That's just a general idea that I think everyone's perfectly aware of. <laughs> <laughs> the concept common, of Rock's Feather. Common cultural concept. This game is not very subtle about jumping, and neither is this first dungeon. I think the horizontal corridor that's going to be the one that is really going to draw a lot of attention to the different spacing between the blocks. Because when you go through that room, you pretty much just hold left and just push A through it, but it shows that Mike can jump one or two tiles, but only one or two tiles. Right, he'll automatically lock onto the next available tile, whether it's one or two away. Yeah, so you're not going to accidentally jump over one green space and land in the water. Yeah. That is also going to be the room that if you didn't accidentally jump yourself into the water in the two rooms or three rooms prior, yeah, the two rooms prior, this would be the one to also show you that Mike can only jump two tiles because right in front of the door, because, you know, the first time around it's locked, that red panel isn't actually there the first time. So if you decide to keep going left thinking the floor panel is there because, you know, in the room just before you needed to push one in order to open the door, you'll jump straight in the water. But if you, you know, catch on quickly about Mike's limits, you'll think to jump onto the floor panel down, which will reveal that red button. I feel like this dungeon feels the one aspect, though, is that uh, it doesn't really convey the basic mechanics of its dungeon level design. Like, you kind of have to guess around. You have to know that you're going to activate a switch somewhere by stepping on one of the green platforms, but I think they could have done that better by forcing Mike uh, to jump on a green platform in a room, in a narrow room, 
to, to get make it progress. But isn't what they're showing you that you have to try things? Like, if they did that, then maybe it would set your expectation that only when there's a green tile by itself is that a switch. By right. locking the door, they still force you to learn that. Yeah, and I guess another... that's true. But I guess then they should have used the the, the room with the treasure chest first before any other rooms. Well, I guess what I was what I was gonna say is that in the third room where you where you first encounter the red switch, uh, that's the only way to actually get to the other side. So you have yeah. to land on that in order to. You yeah, know, but how much does you know that sipping on green platforms causes switch to happen? Because well, because there's nowhere else only... to go. It, yeah, it's the it's the only way to get to the other side because if you do it on the one left, you'll just fall right in the water trying to get to where the door is. If you do it on the one right, same thing, you'll jump into the water. You have to land on that tile to jump to the other side. It's just not as elegant as I'd like it to be. Oh, see, I I really like it this way because it's setting your expectations while still being a challenge. Whereas I feel like what you're describing to me would feel like a tutorial, and I think that. This dungeon is a great example of how to teach a player how to play a game without hitting them with a tutorial. It sounds like what we're describing is a dungeon that lays the groundwork for the rest of the game, but is not unique from the rest of the game. Just that it it covers the very basics of walking around and jumping between tiles in a way that you'll be doing throughout the rest of the game. Yeah. You know, for the game's focus on jumping... Do you think it's strange, maybe, that they don't have jumping in the overworld? No. The world is kind of just mm. a navigation puzzle most of the time. Yeah, you're right. I guess it's sort of like Star Tropics is kind of two games in one, in a way, because you got the overworld mic and you got dungeon mic. Well, the overworld mic is just dungeon mic without combat. It's really jumping. What I would say is that it very cleanly separates the two aspects of Zelda mm. to the action yeah. element and the exploration element. Yeah. They're two separate games. Yeah, I was and... just about to say, because you, you could almost say the overworld of Zelda is a dungeon in itself. Right. Yeah, and I think that the overworld is is more used as a sort of narrative and framing device. It's very Dragon Quest-y. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually nice. I like it, and mm. I'm not always a huge fan of mazes and stuff, but I think it gives the game a real nice pace having uh, that stuff in between, so you're not mm, yeah. always in dungeons, always under fire. Yeah. I agree. Mm, agreed. All right. Now, Daniel covers the second level in Chapter 3. He's picked three challenges that show off different aspects of the jump. And Daniel, what dungeon would you like to talk about? I would like to talk about Chapter 3, Magna's Tunnel. I'm not sure what number we're ascribing to. Is it 3-2? That's the one where you got to douse the demon thing by that stepping is, on the switches. Yeah, okay. Yeah, actually, this dungeon surprised me at first because it's like half of the dungeon is in that regular greeny area with a bit of um, water around it, quite similar to the main dungeon in Chapter 2. And then you kind of go downstairs and it becomes like this, well, like hell, hell on earth. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't think that they had 
underground lava on islands in the Pacific. But, I'm not so um, sure that that it's, was lava. It's a volcano. Yeah, but what I don't get is like, so you're on, so you are in this kind of like greeny area, and then you go downstairs into, I guess what must be like the base of a volcano, and then you somehow get onto the other side. Anyway, let's just ignore that. So uh, I don't think there's a real consistent theme in this dungeon, but there are a lot of really neat gameplay challenges, and I'll talk about a few of those. I think a couple of these I've talked about on the forum in the diary thing I'm doing, uh, like the photo diary. So, yeah, but let's have a look at a few. So the third room with the tea water channel in it, that has two... Skeleton turkeys is, is is the name that I came up for them, and um, they're quite interesting because the the first enemy in the game that moves too quickly towards you for you to be able to take them head on. Now there is this trick that you can do where you attack really really quickly and you can you know beat some enemies like the snakes in that way, but you know, these guys have too much health. So what you need to do is catch them on this water channel. So you guide them over to the water channel, you jump over, and then. As they're about um, to jump, you know, they have a, like a little bit of buffer time, and you just make use of that to get in your attacks. And then before they jump over, you then jump over to the next one in the center part of the T. Uh, it's a bit hard to explain. Yeah, so it's a really neat little challenge um, that's set up to show off this neat little nuanced aspect of these enemies. So, yeah, and so my learning experience was like, you know, I went in and I couldn't directly figure out how to take them head on, and then I observe that they paused a bit when uh, jumping over the water channel and then um, I took advantage of that. I enjoyed that bit. That also reflects on your controls, right? When you take that approach, you're also dodging them by crossing over the water channel and part of it is that there's some wait time when they approach the water but part of it is also Mm. that by jumping over the block you're able to move away from them faster than if you were to just walk normally. So yeah, that's right, yeah. Also using those so, gaps as an escape. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, it ties jumping and uh, attacking up together in a neat way. I actually have been able to take those guys head on, but it is tricky because if you push the button too fast, it doesn't work, they'll run right into you. But I found a specific rhythm mm. from which I can tap the button to be able to take them out in one swoop before they can hit me. It's, uh, every single time it's, it's really close, but you can do it. Yeah, I just do what Adrian does. I just take him head on. That sounds hard. Uh, it entails just mashing the button as fast as I can. And it always works. Skeleton jerseys are nothing for a Seattle pitcher, Mike Jones. <laughs> He's like a sophomore in high school. Yeah. Really? I thought he was like 10 years old. He's 15. Okay, whatever. Did you read the manual? No. Yeah, but if he's a sophomore and he's the captain of his high school baseball team, they cannot be a very good baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it was junior high baseball team. Well, then... So he got held back? Yeah, something's <laughs> really wrong there. <laughs> anyway. So then in the next room, um, it's a darkened area and there are snakes just to the left uh, with the one, two, three, four um, rows of grass. And so 
what you'll notice is that on the third one down is a bit longer than the others and so as you move along the vertical platform just to the side it will draw out the snakes because you know they're in alignment with you and if you notice and uh, if you pick up that the snake up on the third row moves out one more tile further than the others and that will reveal that you can actually move across there without jumping into the water and there's a similar thing just later on with the three blocks just afterwards and what you do there is is that there's a little octopus and it will jump in between those three so I thought it was really neat how they just changed the presentation of this room and then it, it created like a new type of challenge where you really had to uh, focus on the movement of the enemies in a different way. That's a neat knowledge test where you have to observe how far something moves or where something moves and then deduce from that. That's ground I can step on too and you have to apply the knowledge that you can only jump over one tile and use that to find where enemies are and where you can go. You have to know the yes. enemies, too, to be able to do it. You have to know that those snakes only move when you walk by them, right? and that they will continue to move until the end of whatever they're on. Yeah. You know, they don't stop at a fixed distance. Yeah, so that's really neat. Then we pretty much get to the boss, yeah, which I really like. What I like about this boss, actually, is that there's no, like, yo-yo use. It's actually just jumping and moving so it's a nice it's quite um, unconventional for a boss in that you're not attacking which is cool so the two flames um, on the left and right they uh, rotate around the two orange tiles that are at either end of the horizontal strip under the boss <laughs> and the boss also fire projectiles at you which are homing so yeah uh, I really like how in this challenge at the start, um, as you move from the first tile over to that horizontal strip, yeah, that's kind of like one sort of challenge where there's two different timers. Well, there's actually three. You've got the timer of the flames, which are rotating around their little tiles. You've got the time that the boss will send out his projectiles, and you've got the time at which they will approach you. And so, yeah, so there's a few timers there. In the top left-hand corner, there's a nice safe spot where you can't get hit, which is good. And that kind of breaks up the first and the second challenge. The second challenge is where you are near the boss. And because you're closer to the boss, you just have to deal with his individual um, projectiles. You don't have to really worry about the flames at the bottom half of the screen because you know, they're nowhere near you. But um, it's harder because you have less reaction time, and that lack of reaction time means that you really got to focus on the timing of the time intervals between his attacks, and then you've got to make your way back around, and that kind of goes back to the first challenge. And yeah, um, I thought it was neat. Like it's really simple, but um, based on your relative opposition to the boss, the challenge changes in a slightly dynamic way, which is cool. So yeah, sorry. Um, there's lots of cool details, and I didn't want to like <laughs> take up too much time. So. Even though yeah. none of these challenges hang together in any particularly thematic way, you've still chosen three challenges that make interesting use of Star Tropic's unique controls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good luck finding three challenges in Star Tropics that don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a 
I like that. That's a good line. Um, that's that's a bit of a pun. That's a bit of a pun there. <laughs> examples flesh out the jump in Star Tropics. The skeleton turkeys encouraged him to make use of the jump as a dodge maneuver. The darkened room tested his ability to gauge the distance of the jump without being able to see the floor. And the boss itself was killed entirely with jumping, using the jump to activate switches. Zanrio brings us the third level in Chapter 3. She focuses on obstacles that don't have a basis in the controls themselves. Instead, they require reasoning, highlighting Star Tropics puzzles. Xanrio, what level will you talk about? Tree Tree? The right. Ghost Tunnel? So, what would you say is this dungeon's theme? Well, uh, the ghosts, the enemies that you have to use an item to see. Or else uh, attack you and you don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's really frustrating. So no, first time I didn't understand how to use that item I picked up and didn't even see it, so I thought it was a bug or something, and when I <laughs> got to the room, I just got out of nowhere, so I saw the room with some poison gas in it or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was my thought, too. Yeah, same. So, yeah. See, the game doesn't it, teach you about using... The pause and then the no, no. So I didn't <laughs> notice what's going on. I also noticed I had the snowman <laughs> item before, but I didn't actually need to use that. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a little goofy. Sanyo, could you explain exactly how and why you use the wand item? Yeah, when you want to use it, uh, pause, cut on. Then you click it, and then if there's any invisible enemies in the room, then they appear. You can see them and attack them. Right, so you then kill the enemies and it'll open any doors you might have missed when you couldn't see the enemies. Yeah, so for some reason I didn't realize you can kill the ghosts first. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't even try to attack them, so I thought They're already them. dead. Enemies, <laughs> I couldn't attack the first room where I just had to hit switches. So I just, just kind of walked around them, avoiding them, and... <laughs> But then I realized when I one of us one of those rooms, oh, I have to kill the enemies to open the door. Right. In kind of Star Tropics defense, this game was made in a time where it's, developers kind of assumed you would read the manual and you know yeah. learn how to use items. But uh, otherwise, no. I I encountered similar you know goofy. I did figure out eventually that in order to use it, you have to hit pause and then down. And not the select buttons. I had to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Because when you push pause, it doesn't open up the menu. It just stays there. Which is yeah. you know, another kind of misdirection in your effort to find, where's that item I just picked up? Yeah, yeah I <laughs> thought my game was put a book or something. <laughs> no, just a couple ghosts. <laughs> so, Sandrio, would you say that this wand item... Does it reflect on your controls at all in any interesting way? No, it's it's just to use them for the magic item menu, and then you, you just click it once, then it works for the entire time you're in the room, so you just use once each room. Right. In its entirety, it's a menu function, and it doesn't influence how you jump or move around yeah. or hit anything. 
Yeah, I'll limited menu function. The same goes for the, the lantern that is in this level, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot mm. this is a level with the lantern. Yeah, and so it does build on some of the uh, previous themes that we were talking about before with the darkened rooms. That's true. You have darkened rooms, and the dungeon is consistent within itself and how it has the two um, screen... Activation items? Yeah, I guess <laughs> you would call it. That both have nothing to do with how you move through space. Is this unique from the rest of the game? Do any other dungeons use those kinds of items? Yeah, there are other chapters that use the magic rod. The lantern, I don't remember, though. I think that's the the, only challenge. I remember the scepter showing up in maybe 5-1 or somewhere where I never used it. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's required in um, Chapter 5. Oh, it is? Yeah. I guess I just forget where I used it then. But yeah, aside from like that one oddball moment, this is uh, really the only place in the game you see that. There's also other elements that are really annoying, like there's the reflective shield in one of the rooms, and if you don't get it in that room, then and if you go onto the next room, then you <laughs> yeah, have to yeah. Uh, I remember making the time wrong at that with that item sometimes, so I put hmm. it off too early and I still get it. Yeah. Items like the magic rod and the lantern show that Star Tropics challenges players beyond its controls. Although the game frequently has puzzles, these puzzles in the Ghost Tunnel are especially puzzly for toning down the timing and reflexes that they test. Timing and reflexes do come up when facing the mage enemies, but even then, they fit a puzzle-centric level. There's only one way to kill them, and it's by correctly using the mirror item. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Shouty's up next to talk entirely about timing and reflex challenges, stressing finesse with the controls. Chapter 5 has quite a few traps with precise timing and not much else. Shouty, what level will you be talking about? I'll be talking about 5-1, the cave. Ooh, the cave. The cave of Captain Bell. Oh yeah. So what would you say is the theme of the cave of Captain Bell? Quick reflexes. It's filled with traps and uh, crumbling blocks, so you really have to be quick to get through this if you want to survive. There's crumbling blocks, there's the spears that come out of the walls, and then there are the giant bowling balls. Yeah, and the bowling balls, and the balls you have to hit and then jump over to get around. And there's a room that if you don't act quick enough, you die. So, how do these elements that make up the theme, how do they play against your controls? Uh, I feel like you really have to be very intimate with how my controls in this game to get around the obstacles. You have to know his speed, you have to know when he jumps, when you press the button, and when he lands. You have to be very precise and getting in tight spaces very quickly. Yeah. Especially so it's, bowling balls. I feel like it's a real test of, you know... Island courage. Yeah. Island. This is the real island courage test. <laughs> I don't know what that baby test was beginning of the game was. <laughs> I have a quick question. In the third room with the chain of broken platforms, is it possible um, to get all three sets of hearts? I have not. I tried it and I couldn't Me do too. it. I can only get one. I can get two. I really? Yes. I, yeah. I, I can get two, not all three. To get two, so, you have to take the little shortcut directly north of the switch. 
there's a, a little place where you can either jump over a gap or you can go up, left, left, down. So jumping over is much faster. That upside down. Oh, oh, oh that. Okay, I see it now. <laughs> so, yeah, just in a general sense, a lot of these traps move very fast, so you need to know exactly, or, you know, you don't need to know exactly, but mm-hmm. you need to be pretty familiar with how fast Mike moves when he can turn around, how to control him on a tile-by-tile basis. But there's also, I think in particular, bowling balls take advantage of your limited of the limited reach of your yo-yo, both the fact that you can only shoot forward and the fact that you can only shoot so far down a corridor. And there is also the tiny balls that you bounce back and forth get you very familiar with how you can use the jump to dodge things. There are certain parts where you can't get through this without getting hit unless you jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few elements that contribute to that sort of uh, Indiana Jones theme. You've got the crumbling tiles, you've got the spears that come out of the walls, you've got the um, the wooden spikes that come out of the floor, which is pretty Stakes. creepy. Stakes. And then you've got the bowling balls. And they really are bowling balls, don't they, which is odd. Um, so, um, so you've got yeah. the bowling balls, but then you've got like on the tiny micro balls, lots of balls. So, oh, <laughs> I know, I know yeah. what the bowling balls are foreshadowing, but I won't spoil it. Yeah. We were uh, discussing this last night, but it, it's actually more Washington Jones, because because Mike. Oh Jones right, from he's Washington. right. Because what? Don't get it. He named him after the dog. Well, <laughs> wait, he had a dog named Washington. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what? Well, Indiana Jones isn't from Indiana. Warrior fan. <laughs> oh my God. I hate to shatter your dreams. What? I watched all four of those movies. All three. All four? Yeah, I don't remember a fourth one. Um, <laughs> Shouty, would you say this theme is distinct from the earlier dungeons? The the dungeons prior to Chapter 5? I think with the traps, like all these new fangled gizmos that are trying to kill you, it really does feel dis- distinct. How about from the later dungeons... Chapter 6 uh, onward. Are, are there traps later on? I think there are. So the stakes come back, and I believe... Oh, yeah, yeah, the the Super Balls do as well. Yeah, the balls come back in a more upgraded form, so... I mean, I guess... But I feel like this chap, this this dungeon really uses the full gamut of every trap they throw at you. Later on, it's just kind of for one-off puzzles that feel kind of disconnected from the rest of the dungeon. Right, there's a particular focus here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. this dungeon in particular gets at how you move around more so than how you attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I do love that T-junction in the middle with the tiny balls in each of the pathways. Yeah, it's um, a great room. Mm-hmm. It's really tough, but it's it's of your own making. So I think it's pretty hard to get on the timing right so that you can be dodging two balls in the one corridor. Yeah. Especially with that soft pause at the end of each corridor at the exits. Yeah, that's what really trips me up. Yeah, I get hit by that all the time still. Yeah, the bats and the other things that rebound off the walls, they also do that soft pause, which is the one thing that I've had to constantly remind myself that that's what that they do that they don't bounce off instantly because that usually what ends up making me jump and then fall right back on top of them all right 
Any other thoughts on the cave of Captain Bell? Uh, I think it's really cruel how there's that one passage over to the left near the end where there's all the spikes coming out of the wall and then you've got that single platform fading in and out and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like they really put you on edge there yeah <laughs> it's actually timed perfectly so that if you jump when you get there you'll jump into the water Wait, really? <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. alright Don't get me wrong, Mike's walking speed is always relevant in Star Tropics. However, the challenges in Chapter 5 are as strict as they are simple. The spear traps launch directly at Mike, and with a moment's hesitation, Mike will get hit. All of the other challenges we discussed require really tight timing, too. Chapter 5, in particular, tests the player's command over the speed of controlling Mike, his walking speed, as well as every delay in his moves. Now, we have yourself, who has the first level in Chapter 6. An item in this level expands the distance of Mike's jump, creating a new challenge by changing a familiar ability. Yourself, what dungeon are you going to talk about? Chapter 6, The Lost Ruins. That is not called The Lost Ruins in the game. Someone just made up that name. (laughs) (laughs) So, what's the theme of this dungeon? This one's kind of easy because they introduce a new item in this dungeon that is used throughout. It's the feather headband, maybe? I couldn't tell exactly what it was. It's, it's like it's the magic anklet. Is yeah, what yeah. The, what it is. Wow, that's one big ankle. So, so wing shoes. You know, like Hermes sandals? I thought it was like Hermes headband, but yeah, same idea. So I think me and Adrian are right, and you guys are probably wrong. Uh, <laughs> Somehow putting on an ankle changes your shirt color. So they introduced that at the beginning of the dungeon, and what it does is allows you to jump two tiles or over an obstacle that is two tiles instead of just one tile. And you can still make one-tile jumps, but now if there's nothing for two tiles, he'll make the longer jump. The item lasts for the duration of a room. Are there any other items that do that? I don't think so. That you just pick up and... Yeah, I don't I don't think there are any other that activate automatically. And it's more like a traditional power-up, I guess, than anything mm-hmm. else in this game. The pill activates automatically, but its effect carries over between rooms. I don't know what the pill is. <laughs> okay. The double-length jump is something they introduce right away in the second room of the dungeon. And the way that they do it is there's a river across the rim that is two tiles wide, and there's no apparent way to cross it. So who knows if it says in the manual, but you can figure out on your own, okay, this thing I picked up probably lets me jump over here. So you do that. You can see you can jump two tiles. And then it also, right there in that room, makes you do a one-tile jump. So you can figure out right away as well that uh, you can still make those. Uh, So there's no ambiguity to it, really. There are a couple more rooms in the dungeon that use that. Probably the most prolonged jumping puzzle in the game I can think of uh, is the longish room towards the beginning. That requires you to sort of read the implicit paths and 
determine how you're going to get through the room. Like there are tiles scattered all throughout it. So when I was talking earlier about like needing to look ahead to see what kind of movements you're going to make to set yourself up for them correctly, like this is the kind of room that does that. So in terms of controls, I think it's pretty obvious what that does for it. It doesn't really make you reevaluate your controls, but it maps an existing control onto a new function. So it expands the way that you look at jumping without necessarily changing the way that you control jumping. So it's an expansion of the gameplay space because now the player not only needs to look for one tile gaps, but also needs to identify two tile gaps. So it's a new queue you're looking for, a new place that you can use the existing ability. But it's also a queue, like it's similar to what you're already doing. Right. So I guess it's maybe not so much a totally unique queue as a you know, modification of the existing one. That's what it is, a modification of an ability. Yeah. Yep. This is pretty unique among all of the dungeons prior and afterwards. I think you see this item only one other time in the game, if I recall correctly. That's true. I think it's also unique in the sense that I don't think any of the dungeons are so strictly themed around one item. Hmm. Right. You cannot get through unless you use this item. It, yeah. In that sense, almost feels more like a Zelda dungeon than the others because there's so much focus on this one new ability. Like, obviously, it doesn't exactly parallel the way that that works in Zelda, but the way of expanding the player's abilities is something that is, you know, associated with Zelda yeah. games. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is that it's limited to a power-up and not an item that you can keep with you for the rest of the game. Yeah, it's also disorienting that anytime you leave a room, you go back to the old jumping. Uh, yeah, there are definitely times... Towards the end, there's one room that, for whatever reason, I just always forget that I need to pick up the... Oh, because it's the one room where you actually have to hit a switch to make the uh, power-up appear. Or No, not the one room. But it is one of the rooms that makes you hit a switch to make it appear. And so, yeah, I do tend to forget to hit that switch first, then go get it, then make the jump. What's interesting about these challenges is that before we've been talking about challenges that highlight one aspect of the controls or another, but here it takes controls that are already familiar and then changes them so that you have to relearn them. Right. So I think it's a good late game way to make you reevaluate the same kind of rooms you've been looking at the entire game, but now with a, a slightly new ability or controller or whatever. All right. Adrian closes out the segment with the first level of Chapter 7. He describes enemies that emphasize the range of Mike's abilities. And last but not least, Adrian, what level will you be talking about? I'll be doing the first part of Chapter 7. Alright. So what's the theme here? Well, visual theme is spaceship, but as far as gameplay themes, it really stresses the laser gun a lot because you fight this is a level that has a lot of projectile enemies. 
that are also kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. <laughs> and those enemies, they actually do bring out something in the controls. Or I shouldn't say it brings out something in the controls, but it just... Basically, the way you want to take out these enemies is you kind of want to kite them. Because what it brings out with your yo-yo, or what, should I, what I should say is your morning star, is that your morning star is exactly, for the yellow robots, one tile longer than their shooting ranges. So you always have to be within that three tile distance in order to hit them. And if they move closer to you, you kind of want to back out of that range. So you kind of have to stay in that nice little sweet spot to take out the enemies. And that's what they stress about the controls. This is also true for the laser guns, which the green enemies, they shoot about five tiles, and you need to be six tiles distance in order to hurt them without being in the line of fire yourself. It's my understanding that the laser gun will only shoot as far as their laser gun shoots, and so you're forced to dodge over their shots. Is that accurate? No, it's. I believe it shoots one tile longer. Because okay. if you look in the bottom right corner, that is the distance vertically. If you count the tiles, it's one, two... It's, wow, it's so hard. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, it's actually seven. Oh, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, so if he's on one end of that, you know, long pipe thing and you're on the other, you can hit him without him hitting you. It's hard to see and it's all most of the time hard to do because, you know, that's most of the screen. And right. They don't give you a lot of opportunities to be that many tiles away from them to shoot them down. So that's what makes the green ones even more of a pain in the ass. You would say this dungeon really brings out the uh, a good sense of the range that you have from your abilities. Yeah, it definitely brings out the range. The other thing is it also brings out the limitation of the jump, especially those green ones. Because they shoot multiple bullets at once, you might be able to jump and shoot and probably jump over one of their bullets, you know, if you're within their range. But, you know, nothing stops them from just shooting from the other bullet falling right after it to hit you. They actually shoot in volleys of three that are timed so that you can jump between them. Yeah, of course. The thing is, they don't have much of a tell when they're about to shoot. And especially when you're directly in front of them, because Mike himself is two tiles tall, they right. shoot, <laughs> like, at that close. Uh, yeah, good luck seeing that. So the enemies bring out the range of your morning star. If you have the yo-yo, that's too small of a range, so that brings out you needing to jump over their bullets, but good luck trying to time that at that distance, because those bullets are fast. You also mentioned the laser gun, which extends your range, and you mentioned how the green robots play off of that range as well. Yep. So that's um, another cool thing. The other cool thing is in this middle section where you see all these jump pads, the robots... But if they're standing on them, they can only hit you if they're one pad away from you. So you can use that laser gun. And if you're like just two jump pads away from them, you can shoot them and they will never be able to hit you. But once they're like one jump away from you, then you're in their range. So it's a really cool like gunfight where you're where you're both jumping around trying to shoot at each other. Yeah. Jumping, turning, <laughs> shooting in the middle of jumps. And it's it's really cool. Space Cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you have tiles, you can jump between the gameplay actually speeds up. Yeah. I was going to say that it's kind of cool with the bikers, because they also bring out another aspect. Well, one, you can't jump over them, so when the bikers come and they come behind you, it brings out the aspect of you jumping, turn around, and hit them as they're coming at you. If you have a morning star, you can take them out with one hit. The yo-yo, <laughs> good luck yeah, hitting them fast enough, because those guys are also fast, and 
the pause is so brief that they can very easily cover whatever distance and run right into you. Because remember, the yo-yo only has two tiles range, and they can very easily cover those two tiles before you can hit them again with the yo-yo to finally kill them. And if they come on both sides at even times, oh boy. Alright. Would you say this theme is unique among all the levels in Star Tropics? I would say yeah. It emphasizes the most of your projectiles, the range of your own attacks where you want to sweet spot enemies like that or jump over mm. their attacks. More of a back and forth kind of gunfight and jumping and attacking at the same time because it helps you deal with those robots as they're jumping on the platforms. And so you can hit them without having to get into their line of fire if you're both close by. Same with those biker enemies where you can't jump over them because they're too tall. So if you want to move across without having to stop and wait for them every time, you can jump and then deal with them as they zoom at your position, provided you have the morning star to make that easier. Right. This is also a level that really stresses you being up and you're powered up straight. Otherwise, you're going to have a really bad day with just the yo-yo. Yeah. Or if you don't have that gun, because mm. that gun is also helpful. The boss is also really cool. <laughs> What's going on with the boss is it uses that sick-ass power-up that was in your self level that he covered or you can jump two tiles and this time you do it with these two Gundam Zaku looking robots <laughs> mm -hmm. and you know you jump across these two tile spaces like you're like moon jumping while trying to shoot at them at the same time and it's really cool I cheesed it a little bit by using too much of the cleats to take out most of their health but I did run out and eventually had to resort to you know getting in a cool how did you still have cleats oh you see where section G is in that top room? I got those cleats and kept it with me through the whole way. Oh. So, yeah. And this is the time where you see that double jump power-up where you're jumping two tiles and also stressing, you know, shooting off to the side mid-jump. And, yeah, I'll say that's it. I don't think that happened as much in the level yourself had where, you, where you're fighting enemies over gaps like these with the double jump power. All told, Star Tropics has a variety of ways to test your skill with the controls. Sometimes it takes good use of the jump, or an understanding of an entirely new jump. Sometimes it takes good timing, and other times it takes good spacing and range. And it can even take emphasis away from the controls to consider some puzzles. All of these skills are relevant throughout the game, but Star Tropics also distinguishes its challenges by highlighting one aspect or another. So, in conclusion, Shadi, do you like Star Tropics? I think it was a worthwhile experience. I think I really tested my mettle as a video game player. It was a hard game. Was it hard? I think it was pretty fair because, you know. It didn't, like, it just sent me back to the beginning of each dungeon after I died. So it was at least merciful in that regard. So I think, you know, I had fun just figuring out how to beat it. Okay. Zanrio, do you like Star Tropics? Yes, sure. Alright. <laughs> Yourself, do you like Star Tropics? Yeah, so far I think it's great. Alright. It's really good as far as NES games go in terms of Having like a really great difficulty curve, uniquely defined levels, and uh, like really tight enemy design—it's great. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Wario fan, do you like Star Tropics? Oh yes, I definitely. All right, Adrian, do you like Star Tropics? <laughs> yes, I do. Sometimes I, I they... can't. <laughs> oh. Wario fan, what were you gonna say? I can't wait for the sequel. Oh yeah, it should be out in a couple of years. Ooh, good, good. <laughs> uh, and Daniel, do you like Star Tropics? Uh, yes, I do. I agree with uh, yourself quite a lot. So, like, I really appreciate it's kind of like the strict challenges that are very um, focused on the particular nuances of the uh, jumping and movement. And uh, I also like how there's like no overworld or anything like that, like in Zelda, which I really didn't like because I find that you know it's kind of like a, uh, a lot of the uh, locks and keys are riddles, um, and you have to like. You know, burn a random bush or something like that and I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate how Star Tropic was more straightforward um, yeah and <laughs> Dragon Quest in the way it deals out its narrative so yeah I'm, I'm quite surprised by this game alright yeah, yeah I had stayed away from it for a long time thinking you know I don't really like Zelda so I'm not going to play it but it is definitely way better than I was expecting mm, yeah and to me, I find this uh, Star Tropics, well, a lot of what it does is actually what I find more in, well, basically not the first two Zeldas, where each room feels distinct and there's a certain flow to the room and how they want enemies to sort of pressure you. Whereas in the, I mean, Star Tropics does have a few rooms where it's just one big open empty space and they have like a bunch of those mummies in there. But, you know, with the first Zelda, that's almost, almost all of them. <laughs> Every single game. room, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Star Tropics definitely gives me a good comparison to Zelda and mm. top top down action games in general because I don't find any top down games that aren't shmups. So, uh, it's a small pool of games. So I've been waiting to play this one. And I'm glad I got to it. Nice. All right, I think that's it for this time. Thank you all for joining me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank, thank Thanks, you, Greg. Greg. What was that? I had bananas in my ears. I couldn't hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many people do you think um, are are are, are going to um, want to move on to Star Tropics two on your own after you play this one? Me. I will. Maybe. I'll probably try yeah, it. Will. Although I've been told very bad things. So. It's not. If people are just people are extreme about things, but Star Tropics two is a fun game. <laughs> Doesn't it have random battles or some shit like that? What? No. Oh, it's just that you can randomly drop into dungeons from the overworld. It's. I don't think it's random. Uh, it's like, there are like certain tiles. It like feels random, but it's not. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. But you just drop into dungeons. That's all I remember from it. Where was the music in this podcast from? Oh, right. It's from Star Tropics. If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com. Because Star Tropics takes place in real time, it will, of course, always test your finesse with the controls. When we consider those controls in themselves, we understand the tools we have to overcome challenges in the game. 
the controls are our means of interacting with Star Tropics. Rather than focus on how enemies move or how levels are laid out, this time we discussed how we chose to interact with Star Tropics in reaction to those enemies and those levels. This podcast was recorded and produced in coordination with the Miracola Arts Council.